SoftLedger provides real-time cloud accounting software that enables accountants, CFOs, and developers to manage multiple entities, integrate with other systems, and close the books faster. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, SoftLedger, later in the episode. You know, what I always say is, is the job of a lawyer is to worry about everything going wrong. I was taught to draft documents a lot, and this is how I think lawyers draft documents, is if in three weeks after signing the documents, every single one of the partners hate each other, hate each other. And so you have to figure out a way out. And that's what the operating agreement is. It's your roadmap for doing it. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And we are live with Matt Foreman. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Matt, I'm so excited to have you here because it's the week of the Silicon Valley bank collapse. I know you've got to have opinions on that because you have so many opinions about everything. And I want to hear what you think about that. I haven't really been able to prepare. It's been a crazy week for us. And so I know you'll, you'll help us fill all the time with uh, everything everything you want to talk about. And I'm glad you speak up and you speak your mind. Uh, it is March Madness. You got a, you got a, a team in this bracket? Uh, yes and no. You know, I, I went to Penn State for law school, so I guess the answer is Penn State. Um, SUNY Albany didn't make it. You know, they, they had a good run maybe 10 years ago where they made it a couple times, and then they made it to about five. They were down by two or three to uh number one or number two seated UConn when I was a uh, first year in law school. I think it was first year in law school. Um, and then uh, UConn realized what was happening and kind of blew them out. So no, no, not really, not that strong. So, All right. Well, you're still watching it, though. That's what you were doing right before we got on. I see Michael is in the audience. Michael, thanks for joining us. He says, I think we're seeing each other too often, guys. Smiley face. No, we can't see each other too often, Michael. Like David said, we're becoming professional Twitch streamers. Uh, we haven't yet put the Cloud Accounting Podcast. We're not podcast. doing two hours today, though. That was last week. Two hours <laughs> is a lot. It is a lot. Uh, that was on Monday, David, wasn't it? Or no, that was last week. You're right. Oh, and then um, we did Monday again. I forgot. Yeah, yeah we did another stream on Monday. Yeah, well, uh, Matt, it's great to you know see you on the YouTube stream here. This Is that the Empire State Building right behind you? That is the Empire State Building. Wow. Um, the big building you see right here, I'm kind of turned around a bit. That's uh, the Times Square Hilton, which is much less exciting and much less notable. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were, if you were to look out the window that way, which you have to walk up here and look over, you can see Thirty Rock. Um, I see a building with a Thomson Reuters logo on it, which I know everyone <laughs> super super loves them these days. Uh, so that's that's fun. Hopefully that they don't sponsor it or anything like that. No, I, I think in order to sponsor the Cloud Accounting Podcast, you actually have to have like a real cloud product. Is that uh, a requirement, David? Or will we take anyone's money? <clears throat> At this pick, we'll take anybody's money. Depends <laughs> on what bank it's coming from, but we'll take it <laughs> if it makes it. Uh, we've got another viewer here. Cordis Tax and Advisory says, "Do not show the TR building." I would have to move. I'd have to move my camera too much. But uh, yeah. yeah, Christopher says, "Beautiful day in NYC." It is. It, it's actually in the mid fifties today, um, so it's probably it, it's probably fifty five or so out, which. <sighs> You know, Blake lives in Arizona, so he's he's not that impressed by mid fifties. But it's a wet fifty, so it feels much warmer as opposed to a dry fifty. Oh yeah, um, but you know, spring and fall in New York, there's nothing better. My brother uh, is a public school teacher in Manhattan, and okay. so I try and go up and visit him at least once a year. And I just love being in the city. I would I would live in New York. I would be a New Yorker if I could. 
I say that I know a lot of people move there and then they realize they can't hack it and they they leave. But I feel like I feel like I would enjoy it a lot. It's a it's a speed that's tough at times. It's an intensity that's tough at times that I think are tough. It's also I mean it's expensive to live here, which is another issue. But I love the speed of things. I love having everything around. You know, I yeah. love Central Park. I love museums. So it is expensive, but Matt, you are a tax attorney. And so I imagine that is a pretty decent living and allows you to enjoy the city. I would love actually to learn from you and on behalf of our listeners, what is it, what is it exactly that a tax attorney does? Uh, David was asking me before we got on, he said, is Matt a CPA? I said, no, he's not, right? He's, he's a lawyer. Right. Is that, that's right? Correct. Okay. And so like, how did you get into tax then? Like, cause you know, a lot of people get into tax through the accounting side of things, but you got into it through law. Yeah, so I um, I was finance undergrad. I, like most 18, 19, 20-year-olds, had no idea what I want to do with my life. I'm still not, you know, I, I joke that I don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but uh, didn't know what to do and uh, sort of made an offhand comment once. This is an awful thing to admit to my mom that I was thinking about going to law school. And she's like, oh, we'll pay for like a LSAT prep course. And so I was like, this is great. It'll get, get my parents off my back for a couple of months about a job after graduation. So I took the LSAT prep course. Um, I took the LSATs um, on my 21st birthday, which I uh, d- don't recommend doing. Really was not was not fun. I mean, the night was fun. The day was not. And I uh, went to law school. And my my law school at the time required everyone to take tax your, your first semester, fall semester of second year. And so I took tax, took basic federal income tax, which is more or less a 1040 class. And I, re- I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. It was the first class I took that I thought was actually trying to solve a problem. And the laws, the rules made any sense whatsoever. A lot of one first year you, you learn about, I mean, in torts, the first, I will get to this in a second, but you, you, the, what, some of the big cases are from the 20s or the 17th century. And they just, they don't apply today. Tax is very now. It's very rational, even though it sort of does things wrong. And I enjoyed it. And one of my really good friends who, who was very highly ranked in our class was complaining one day. We're you know, having lunch, a bunch of people were on a table, and he was just complaining how much he hated this class. And in my head, I'm like, what is he talking about? This is the first class that's ever made any sense whatsoever. So I thought, like, well, one, I, I clearly enjoy it more than most people because everyone else is agreeing with him, not me. Two, there, there are jobs in tax, which is good. And three, you know, I, I grew up in, up in upstate New York. I, I mostly lived in the Albany area. I always wanted to move to New York City. And I knew not only were there jobs in New York, but there are jobs in New York City. That's the epicenter for, for tax law, um, for, for a lot of financial services and, and legal professions. So I was like, you know, this, this might work. So I just kept taking tax classes um, is basically the crux of it. So I came in very differently. Being a finance major, I took a lot of accounting. So for whatever reason, you know, it's been helpful. Now I do a lot of work in subchapter K, but partnership tax was probably the class that made the most sense to me um, in, in an entirety, which people always look at me very strange. But a lot of areas of partnership tax just kind of click for whatever reason and how they're, they're structured. So I, be, you know, I graduated, took the bar. Um, most states, there is no, you know, you can't call yourself a tax lawyer or tax attorney. Um, there's no requirement, right? You can mm-hmm. theoretically, once you're licensed, you're a tax attorney. A couple states have... You know, you can certify yourself in tax law. I, I don't know if that's necessary. What the bulk of the lawyers have in most larger markets is an LLM, which is a master's of tax law, which I have. Um, it's, it's the plum is right there on my wall. And my wife told me to get it out of the house. So I, I brought it into the office. So that's on top of law school? 
Yeah. So, so, so undergrad four years, law school three years, and then LLMs is a fourth year. A lot of people do it part time. So it'll take you three years, usually three or four years to get through basically one, two or three credit class at a time. I took a year off um, and did it full time at NYU, which, which has a great program for it. And really, you know, it, it allowed me to reset my career. I spent my time um, in big four before predominantly. And since then, I, I went on my own for about four and a half years. And now I'm in a firm, uh, CSG Law, that's about 180 attorneys based out of, it used to be West Orange, now it's Roseland, New Jersey, with a, a, obviously a New York City office. I'm, I'm resident here in New York. I don't really go to New Jersey very much. Uh, their, their tax rates are just way too high. So, you know, trying to stay out of New Jersey. But, um, you know, that's it. And, and that, you know, the long-winded story of, you know, I fell into tax. I don't think I'm atypical in that regard. I don't think a lot of people wake up when they're 15 and go, boy, I really want to work in tax. But, you know, it's a good job. It's, it's perpetually interesting and it's ever-changing. And, and the role of a tax lawyer is really, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, what my day-to-day is very, I don't, have a day, I don't have a consistent day. If you were to ask me what I do over the course of a two-week period, it's pretty consistent. But every day is different challenges, different clients, different issues. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by SoftLedger. Are you out growing your small business accounting software? SoftLedger's real-time cloud accounting software has everything you'd expect from a cloud accounting app, like an adaptable GL, bank feed data, automated AP and AR, financial reporting, and cash flow tools. But SoftLedger is more advanced than small business accounting packages, as it can handle multi-currency, multiple businesses, properties, investments, sub-ledgers, and SoftLedger is the first full-featured accounting system that supports crypto multi-wallet asset management with seamless integrations with crypto exchanges, giving you real-time transactional crypto accounting and reporting. SoftLedger is fully programmable via their API, This allows your team of developers to create your own accounting functionality or easily connect SoftLedger to other software you may be using. To learn more about using SoftLedger and to get 25% off your first three months when you mention the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash softledger. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-O-F-T-L-E-D-G-E-R. So, so let's get just a little specific on that. So I come in to hire you. I'm a client. What are you doing for me? Like what problems of mine that, that I have, me being a typical client, are you solving for me? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, you know, I, I break my, my work into sort of three areas. There's always a fourth of like, there's just really random stuff that pops up that's sort of hard to categorize. But the bulk of it is, is what's called tax planning. A lot of what, you know, I don't do estate and gift work. Uh, trust in estates and gift, same thing. So a lot of what I'm doing is business structuring. It's bordering into estate planning type work, but it's one entity selection, how, you know, an operating agreement for an LLC or, or a partnership comes together, issues that come along with corporate or, you know, just kind of legal research. Should I be charging sales tax? Um, ever since, you know, Wayfair was decided five, almost five, maybe six years now, I think it's five years now, you know, those kinds of core questions that come up, that's what a lot of tax, that's what I do a lot of it, a lot of it's state and local. And it's, you know, how to allocate income between a business that sells into 32 states and sells into countries and, and has 14 employees in 11 different states. And how do you deal with the fact that you have income in a, in a variety of different places, which is really always interesting. I, um, I was just on a call this morning with a guy from Avalara who mm-hmm. runs their transfer pricing tool. 
Mm. And, you know, talking about how they've like processized the transfer pricing and, you know, you can buy this as a firm and, you know, uh, basically create the deliverable for your client with that kind of software. Is that what we're talking about? To an extent, I don't do the economic research because because transfer pricing at its core is very economic. What, mm. what I do is help people sort of, first off, sometimes people say like, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm getting it right, that I'm not missing anything. And that's part of the conversation. Some people come because they're like, you know, geez, I'm, you know, I've hired 14 people in all these states or I'm taking on all these investors. And I just don't know what, you know, what are the tax consequences? Do I have to pay tax because I'm selling part of my LLC? Do I have to do this? And, and how is that worth it? And, you know, making sure a, a big part of what I do are, you know, non pro rata distribu- allocation distributions within LLCs. So someone has a preferred return, someone gets a kicker at the end and things like that. And just making sure the operating agreement works properly. And, you know, over the past eight years, there have been a lot of changes to a lot of areas of tax law, you know, from like the partnership representative to just just you know 199a right how compensation and how you split between um wages versus other things can just change how the tax works and making sure it's done right you know a, a big part of it and it's a secondary i kind of get into is MA is from the buyer side is looking at where the seller has gone wrong and that's not to dig on anyone but i i don't think it's possible to get everything right i, ju- I just don't we're human right we're going to make mistakes no one thinks it things the same way go ahead Blake. So speaking of that, what is the biggest mistake that you see businesses make that come across your desk? Sales tax. What's that? 100%. Sales tax? Sales tax. Sales tax. Whether it's taxable, uh, where they need and where they need to collect sales tax. Um, It is, you know, I'm I'm not trying to dig on Avalara or or any of those, but I don't think it's possible to develop a software application that can both encompass all of the areas that are taxed and do it accurately and do it in a way that's somewhat helpful and easy to use, right? Because as a, if you run a business, you want to have 30 categories, right? But states do things so differently, right? They do things in very different ways. Um, my, my favorite, one of my favorite examples is that, you know, in, in New York State, right? Pilates and yoga are taxed differently for sales tax purposes, <laughs> right? One of them's taxable, one of them's not. I, I would tell you which one, but I, ne- I, I at the moment I'm blanking. I'm pretty sure that Yoga is taxable and Pilates are not. Someone, if you want to correct me, go ahead. That's fine. Um, but th- there's a pronouncement on that. There's a pronouncement on whether a hot dog is a sandwich because a sandwich is taxable for New York State purposes because of the bread prepared sandwich. So whether a hot dog is a sandwich, actually something the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance has felt it was necessary to issue <laughs> guidance on, right? And and that's, yeah. that's New York. And those are things you think about. Yeah. And then you think about like a, a product where it's part service, part product right part they're selling some data there's some consulting in it but you can't you can't pull them apart it's one thing it's all part and parcel how do you deal with that states deal with it differently and i just don't they don't get it right and sometimes they sort of choose not to comply well i imagine when a business is smaller like the cost of compliance with sales tax to do it 100 is impossible right so you you're basically in a regulatory regime where you have to simply pick and choose, right? How, how, how well you comply. That's what I've heard from firm owners anyway, who advise their clients on this. They'll say, look, you, you may have nexus and a liability in all these states, but filing might cost you more than the actual sales tax you're collecting and the, and the fines you might experience. And so it all, but then it becomes an issue when they get big, right? So I imagine that a lot of times these issues come across your desk as cases or matters when it's a lot of money at stake at this point. Correct. And there's a lot of, um, 
Yes, absolutely. The issue is, right, so let's say, you know, if you're doing a million dollars in sales, a a rough approximation, you know, about 7% is the normal sales tax rate. It varies. King County, um, Seattle's over 10. You know, there's a couple states that are in the fours. So so the rate can vary pretty significantly. But if you think about a 7% rate, a million dollars is about $75,000. What the business has to do is they have to determine whether it's taxable, right? They have to determine whether it's taxable in that state, whether they have nexus in the state. Then they have to figure out where the right tax rate. A lot of states, like for example, some states have flat tax rates. This is the rate for the whole state. You take like a New York state, which is pretty typical, is there's a state rate, which is I believe four and a quarter, four and a half. There's a county rate, and then there's a locality rate, city, yeah. city, whatever. So you have all these rates. You know, New York City is 8.875%. It's not even an actual penny. It's to the 10th of a penny. So if you sell something for a dollar, like, is that worth, you know, there's a point. And then you have to, you have to account for it. You have to put it in your bank account. I recommend a separate account so you don't spend it or whatever. Then you have to file a return, which is, which is if your sales hit a certain point, is monthly. So you're doing monthly returns in 30 states. Like, and then, and then an annual, at the end of the year, you're remitting. You know, you could spend $50,000 on that for $75,000 worth of tax. Is that, you know, th- there's a practicality that I thought the court really, mm, the dissent in Wayfair tried to bring that up. The majority said, no, 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 technology will take care of it. And we're five years later with a whole lot of money at stake. And, you know, it just, it hasn't gotten there. And I don't think it will. Yeah. I don't think small ones will ever want to. So I deal with that both on companies looking to sell themselves or take on investment. They need to clean it up. And when they come in, um, a lot of times there's, you know, money withheld in escrow and we do it. And then we talk about, De- you know, with M&A work, indemnification, representations, warranties, saying we're doing everything right. If we're not, if something comes up, if there's an aud- you know, audits happen, right, then that's done right. So a lot of that in that area, I do drafting um, for tax, you know, purchase agreements and things like that. And then the last area I do is, is litigation and controversy, which goes into, you know, my love for funding the IRS, which is a big frustration, I think, with every practitioner who does it at all is that they're underfunded government agencies. And so the auditor is working on too much and they don't have people who can be that technical expert. Um, a lot of times, I, the way I think about myself is, right, I don't, I don't say I don't know how to do return. That's, that's not totally true. But is the IRS underfunded? Yes, um, it is. It is. Anyone who says it's not is, is lying to you or, or just beyond uninformed. But Well, now with this $80 billion, right, there's the possibility that they won't be but so far, they've like delayed now again the upgrade of their computer systems, and that's what I was hoping they would spend some of the money on is upgrading that like mainframe. That, so yeah, well, first off, the know. fact that you still use COBOL, which has been a dead language. I learned COBOL in high school, and COBOL was a dead language when I took it in high school, yeah. and I'm yeah. not just out of high school. So you know that's an issue. What 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 I tell people is, if the government were properly funded, audits would be a lot easier. You wouldn't need to hire experts as much. And what they need is both more auditors who have a lighter caseload, because I think they're just overloaded for it, and more technical expertise. They need people who come in and do what I do for my clients, which is I'm the technical expert. I'm the one who says, you have this long to respond. Here's how the issue works. Here's the memo on the issue based on the specific facts. Because the government, right, the IRS and states are so underfunded, they have, they have the auditor doing that with limited technical, with, with limited time to really do the research because they have to move audits along. And so what, what happens, and this is something I've had conversations with um, with some fairly high-level people at the IRS and, and New York State, 
which is my frustration that I feel like the auditors don't have the time to properly look at things and, and analyze it. They're just trying to move it along. And so they'll just take a position that may or may not be correct and say, you litigate it, you appeal it. I don't care. It has to get off my desk within this amount of time. I don't have enough time. And that's not that's not good for anyone. It's not a good use of government resources. And it's not a good use for ta- you know, taxpayers to, you know, pay, like, I get it, they're paying fees. And that's, you know, how, how law firms and accounting firms make money. But at the end of the day, that's that's not an efficient way to do it. I'd rather spend my time doing deal work, doing planning, than doing, you know, audit support and then things like that. I just yeah. find so it So what worse. you're saying, Matt, is it because the government's understaffed, instead of actually getting the reduction order and making a proper decision about a small business violation or whatever it might be, they're like, eh, it might not be correct. Let's just file the paperwork and let them defend it and the conclusion will come out correct or incorrect then because really for them, there's no loss, right? If, no, nobody's going to be criticized if like, oh, I, I brought up 12 cases and I lost every one of them and the citizens won, right? They're just going to move on, right? That's not like they're getting reviewed for that. I think there is some level of review for that, that if you're taking positions and you're consistently getting smoked, that that there is pause. There was a very recent case um, in New York State. If anyone's ever dealt with New York State residency audits, um, it, it's a unique one for New York because of how they do it and how they view it. But there was a very large case called OBUS, um, which dealt with OBUS, which dealt with, you know, a, a domiciliary of New Jersey, worked in New York City. And he he had a house up north of Saratoga, which if you're not familiar with New York, takes you, I don't know, it's probably about 180 to 200 miles north, straight up, straight up the uh, New York State Thruway. And he had a house that he was there about two weeks. And according to how New York State interpreted the law, that made him a resident of New York State, which meant all of his income was taxed in New York, not just the New York source income. And the the attorney who, who litigated it, um, I know very well, and it was a very significant victory, A, because the money the money was large, but also what it did was it carved out what New York State was trying to do. And I suspect that when there are larger cases or more important cases, I know there are, they internally review, how do we audit? Where did we go wrong? Do we need guidance? Do, do our procedures need to be updated? But the bulk of the cases are just like, you know, do they have sufficient substantiation to show the value of the assets that they sold as part of an asset purchase agreement, right? And that is, that's a good, that's a good question. I'll get to that in a second. Um, th- that is a good question. Um, so, and, and that's where I think they do. There is evaluation, there is review, but the bulk of them are smaller issues or they're so fact specific that it's hard to create a global problem. And I think just having a better funded agency would, would accomplish a lot of that because I think they'd be more willing to a guide pro se taxpayers who don't have representation, which is I think very important. And B, they'd be more willing to work with you and, and get to reasonable things, whereas they they can they don't want to spend, they don't have the 30 hours to dig through the data like you did to review it. So a lot of times in appeals, I clear things up. What do you wanna Yeah, why do you want to jump out on this question? And then I have a I want to talk about funding, but yeah. Okay. Uh, so we got a question from specialty bookkeepers. At what point are clients meeting with Matt? At startup, quarterly, annually, upon notice, essentially, how frequently should they budget to meet with their tax attorney to ensure they're compliant? Every day. Every single day. <laughs> how much can they afford? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, no. Um, I think at it, formation, it's really important. And, and I think it's just really important for the same reason that I tell people to get a lawyer to, to put your, your documents. I've read far too many operating agreements that are talk about Delaware and New Jersey 
when the business is in New York, right? It's not in New Jersey. It's not another state. It's not that. And so you need documents that make sense. And, and look, if you're a solo person, you know, you don't need super exhaustive documents. But if you have three partners, right? You know, what I always say is, is the job of a lawyer is to worry about everything going wrong, right? And the way we, I was taught to draft documents and a lot, and this is how I think lawyers draft documents, is if the that in three weeks after signing the documents, every single one of the partners hate each other, hate each other. And so you have to figure out a way out. And that's what the operating agreement is. It, it's your roadmap for doing it. You know, people talk about um, the, how a DAO is computer lang- it's, it's, you know, it's code, right? So it does it. An operating agreement and a da- and, and is really a, a computer code. What issue are you looking for? Go to this page, read what it says. That helps you make the decision. How do you vote? Who makes decisions? So the way I say is, you know, I think that formation is really important. I think anytime your your sales start really going above a point, right? You know, you're you're doing a hundred, two hundred thousand. It's fairly consistent. You're not seeing huge growth. I'm not that worried about that business because it's not changing. You're starting to see hockey stick growth. You know, you're taking on investors. Um, you're giving equity to to people who work in the company. Let's have that conversation. And the conversation may be half an hour. And I say, well, there's really nothing. These are what you watch out for. This is fine. Or the conversation may be, you know, you need a new operating agreement. We need to change some things. We need to change how you operate. So, you know, I'm the lawyer saying it depends. But the answer is, you know, at formation and anytime there's a significant change. And what does significant mean? I think that depends on the business. And that's something you have to talk to, whether, you know, with a bookkeeper or accountant, whoever your advisor is, that that's really where I look at it. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. Anita Coimor, one of the founders of LiveFlow, was telling me about a small business owner who was complaining that his accountant didn't do any cash flow projections with him, causing his business to take an unwanted loan just to keep the doors open. I wanted to learn more and understand from this business owner about what his accountant did or didn't do for him, so I attempted to set up a Zoom call with him. This was his reply, and I quote, I would be happy to review this further, but at a later time. Due to our cash flow problems, the problems are already here, and I have to solve this crisis before I can plan, unfortunately. End quote. It makes me wonder how many other small businesses are currently struggling with cash flow crisis and their accountants aren't helping them. If you're not helping your clients with cash flow, stop what you're doing and go sign up for LiveFlow right now. Grab one of the LiveFlow cash flow forecast templates and connect your client's QuickBooks Online data. You and the client will be able to see real-time money movements, have important cash flow conversations, and make impactful business decisions quicker rather than later. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash LiveFlow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. So just to jump over on the uh, IRS funding, because you feel strongly about it, Blake, and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but there's $80 billion. Like how how is everybody anybody going to agree how to spend that eighty billion dollars if people are fighting over? So part of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, they squeezed in that little fifteen million dollar blurb for the IRS to fund an independent study, right? About setting up their own e file system, you know, the the Fed file, Fed free would compete with TurboTax and Nature Block and all that. And apparently, they're already arguing. The GOP is arguing that this the study called New America is is stacked with uh, people that are already biased in favor of the free tax system. So both sides are arguing about how to spend $15 million. How's this $80 billion ever going to get spent properly? Well, 
you know, since it's going to be all new government agents with guns, I think that'll go pretty quickly. Right? <laughs> um, yes, I, I would say yes, IRS agents have some have guns. Uh, it is like less than a percent. And, and they're the same ones who whenever you hear about uh, financial crimes happening and they raid someone's office and take their computers, the IRS goes along with a gun because that's that's who executes search warrants. Right. Um, the, the answer is the bulk of the money is not for things like that. First off, I think the government should be doing a free file function. They already largely have it. If you make less than $74,000 a year, I think that's the amount for 22. It's, it's at least 68. You can go to the IRS and through their website, you can file federal and state for free. You go through a tool, it gives you the ones you can use and you can use it. So the notion that the IRS you know, isn't already doing that. It kind of is. And it's all the same tax preparers that that there are. And, and and so I think the IRS should try to do it. First off, I think it should be done concomitantly with the general upgrade of the IRS's systems, because the vast majority of taxpayers, especially in the lower income ones, are ones who all of their income is either W-2 or 1099 already, right? Whether it's a retirement payment, pension, you know, social security, or just wage from an income, right? I, I get a W-2 every year, right? So it's information they have, but the systems are so old that they can't process those documents in enough time to make processing even plausible, right? And so there's no way, you know, there's talk about they should move back the deadlines. And I'm not going to get, I think they should, but I'm not going to get into why. But I think, yeah, okay, there you go. Um, look, fund the IRS, right? It, it, it's, I just, I, I've always been of the opinion that you want a well-funded adversary because for people who are not playing games, that will absolutely do it. All right, Professor Book, um, he's talking about, you know, the, the fight. I, I don't understand this fight. I think it's just a fight to, 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 they don't like the fact that the IRS is getting funded. But the bulk of the money, the vast majority of that $87 million is two things. One, a lot of IRS agents are retiring soon. There's a lot of senior yeah. ones with a lot of expertise. They want to hire replacements before people leave. And that costs money because you're double hiring for that period. Two, it's technology upgrades. The IRS, you know, as I said, it runs a system on a dead language. It should not be doing that. It should be on a modern system. And anyone who's ever been involved with a large distributed company developing software, it costs a gigantic amount of money to do. And it's going to, there are going to be cost overruns. And, and you could say, oh, it should run like private business. Every, I've done a lot of R&D credits at a lot of lot, large financial institutions. They all overran on every single project, no matter what. But that's, that's just, you have to accept it. You say, oh, it's the government. You just don't hear it when private companies do it. So I'm a f firm believer. Um, I think that IRS free file should become an IRS thing because I don't think that companies should be going after that segment because I think it's too ripe for these are people who a lot of times don't have advisors and they can't say, well, should I have paid $50? To me, that's something our tax money should fund because we're already largely doing it. And then, you know, is that really, is it really helpful? You know, well, what's the long, what's the long play here? So I don't know. That's my opinion on it. I'm, I've been beating the fund the IRS drum for a non-trivial amount of time. And, and, it, and it's, it's just everything's so political. And even this week, the politics got into the whole Silicon Valley Bank crash because now they're going after it. Well, it's the accounting firms. It's KPMG yes. who I'm, did not. I'm glad uh, you brought that up, David. Audit this correctly. Now, and that's gotten political now, right? Now, now we can pivot into the Silicon Valley Bank discussion. Uh, before we talk about KPMG, I just wanted to talk about the apps that have really benefited, actually, from the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. And that is, want to take a guess? It's the digital banks. We're talking about 
Relay. We're talking about Brex. We're talking about Mercury. Those are the top three that I heard are getting millions, if not billions, in transfers from Silicon Valley bank depositors. And I other... was shocked to see this. Really? Actually, because well, they, they're all those all those apps are partnered with a smaller regional bank. Right, right. So isn't that going to cause the exact same upside downness? <laughs> well, so my theory is that these banks make it so easy to set up an account. You can literally do it in 10 minutes uh, if everything sure. goes smoothly, like with, with Relay, for example, right? And you and I know this, David, because we bank. Our Earmark Media, our podcast, it's all it's it's built, a, on Relay. It's a yeah. built on Relay, right? We use Relay for that. You can. So what was happening is last week, we're... We're recording on Thursday, March 16th right now. So we're one week out from the bank run. Last week on Thursday, startup founders were setting up accounts at Brex, Mercury, Mercury, and Relay within 10 minutes and transferring millions, if not, well, millions of dollars out of their uh, accounts. Tens of millions, 60, 70, 80, could, 90. Yeah, yeah, in aggregate, Hundreds it was of millions. trillions. Hundreds <laughs> of trillions. <laughs> it, you know, it was a lot of money moving out. And that's why this has been called the very first smartphone bank run because it was a bank run with people on their phones moving money on their phones, right? You're not tying up the phones or faxes, calling into your bank to wire money out. You're just doing it with the tap of a finger. And that's why it was so easy. Right. And it happens so, so, so that's fast. what this really is. It's not so much like, oh, we made this analysis and this is the better bank or this is the reason it's safer. They're like, this is the fastest way to get new uh, ACH numbers and transfer funds. Yeah. Yeah, Basically, and do a yeah. wire on your phone, right? Because if you would have walked walked into a branch of Chase, maybe you'd have taken yeah. three days. And yeah. and so, so these banks, uh, you know, their their whole model of making it really easy to sign up worked very well, and so they've benefited a lot. And they've also jumped on the idea of offering expanded FDIC insurance. So over the weekend, all three of them spun up sweep programs where you can now participate in this interbank network that will distribute your funds across multiple regional banks. And they're each offering up to uh, $2 million, $2 or $3 million of FDIC insurance now, which is pretty cool. So if you're a startup, you can just have one bank as your interface and have up to you know th- $3 million in FDIC insurance on your funds, which you know it's what we should have all been doing to begin with, but nobody was really thinking about the risk of a bank run because we haven't had a big one since the financial crisis. So... I thought that was a bit of positivity, right? We are, this is, I I really want to know how many accounts were created in the last week at these digital banks. It's probably going to end up being a huge win for them and for their investors and for their employees. If if these are, I mean, if these are public companies, you'll find out in about a month because when they release their, uh, their quarterly reports, I'm sure they'll tell you, we have 16 quadrillion more, more accounts, you know, or whatever. <laughs> they'll, they'll let you know. Actually, so we can't find out, the, the apps themselves are not public companies, but like David said, the banks that they are built on top mm-hmm. of do issue reports. Yeah. So like ThreadBank, for instance, is what uh, Relay is built on. So we could look to that to see how many new accounts they got potentially. I don't know if they report it, that. It, but When I was building a little database of apps and the ones tied to Silicon Valley, and you start digging into people's footnotes on their websites... A lot of these apps, especially, are tied to banks. Mm-hmm. It's like so-and-so operating this bank in uh, Utah, so-and-so part of this bank in Nebraska. So it's it, So I, I think that the dependencies, I think people are really going to have to step back and start looking at that and understanding when you have a relationship with an app or a company what the underlying relationships are. 
Uh, Ariel says, David hit it on the nose. We're conflating having accounts in many banks with mitigating risk by diversifying which industry and size of the banks. You hit it on the nose, David. Nicely yeah. done. So continuing on with SVB, I want to talk about the auditors getting blamed because we all knew it was coming, right? So the Wall Street Journal led the charge. They didn't really blame the auditors, but they certainly implicated them in the collapse with this headline, KPMG gave SVB Signature Bank clean bill of health weeks before collapse. And I think that they bring up a fair point, which is in the mind of the public who are not accountants, it just seems crazy that a bank could have a clean bill of health that they could you know, pass their audit, as we like to say, and then collapse not that long after. But here's here's the thing, and I think this is where I think where the public's understanding of what an auditor does, financial auditor, right, not a tax auditor does, and what they really do is people think that they take it and then they write this whole thing about like, will this be a good investment over the next five years, right? That that's what they're saying, and what they're really saying is that this company has you know whatever it is sufficient liquid resources and a viable business for its immediate short term needs, right? And what happened with a big part of what happened with them is they tried to raise capital and because they they sold stuff below its fair market, what, what they thought or how it was booked on their value, they basically had to book down a whole bunch of asset. Mark to market accounting is is it it, it beats both ways, right? People don't like it because like, oh, they should mark to market, you know, assets for a wealth tax, which I think wealth taxes are stupid and unadministrable. But also it'll make, you know, a lot of financial things look way more valuable or way less valuable due to bubbles or relatively quick depressions. You know, you think about, you know, how much money FTX had ostensibly was because of a bubble, right? It was worth more. And then when sort of the, the, the smoke cleared, it wasn't there. The assets weren't there. So I think the answer is that auditor people, the, the public needs to know what auditors do a lot more. And I think that's a failing of Big four, especially, I think that's part of their job. I think the AICPA, and I know I'm calling them out again for the eight trillionth time, but that part of their job is to understand what accountants do and what accountants don't do. I mean, is the problem more like we live in this emotional society, right? And we've talked about this with Gap. Nobody uses Gap financials to make investments. If you did, you wouldn't invest in Tesla. You wouldn't invest in Netflix. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't invest in Amazon if you use Gap financials to do this. So if nobody's using the financials, it's kind of the opposite with the audit. They're auditing, and on paper, I, I think Silicon Valley Bank was okay on paper. But the mm-hmm. real risk that they missed was, oh, it's this incestuous set of people only using the bank, and they're all hanging out in this chat room over here. And what happens when they get a fire up their butt? We, we, to we, we say we say bank? market we say market concentration, market concentration, not uh, incestuous. In, in that one, they 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 like the, that. But it's no, but it's funny because you see the number of people who had money there were the same VCs and all 87 of their investments went through Silicon Valley Bank. Mm. And that's, you know, it's, and it's hard for them to tell because how do you know how much there are? But also when bankers loan money, they don't, they don't know if they should invest in the business. They know that they should loan to someone who wants to invest in the business, right? And so they're not making as much of a detailed decision. So every time there's another step in it, should you be doing it? And sometimes you know, I always say this, markets move in weird ways and things track the same way. I don't know what auditors are supposed to do. You know, yeah, sitting in well, plain sight. I don't, I always, well, I don't. So, so, so here's my, can I give you my hot take on this map? So Please. I don't, I don't think the auditors are to blame because the public might expect this, but the way we've set things up, auditors, external auditors are not really there to 
to protect investors. We have set up a system where they get paid by the company and they effectively work for management in reality, even though they report to an audit committee. And they're not going to take down a bank by issuing some sort of adverse opinion, unless it's like completely obvious, right? They're not going to, they're not going to go out there on a limb and protect investors. They're always going to side with management whenever they can. And then we've got a situation where management can really manipulate their earnings very easily because of the accounting standards we have that allow them to say, we're going to hold this to maturity or we're going to make this available for sale. And I don't have to recognize losses on investments that I plan to hold to maturity. So I can basically hide that in plain sight in the statement of comprehensive income, but it's not going to hit my earnings. And so very few investors ever look at anything other than you know the bottom line or the earnings, right? If it doesn't hit earnings... There's so many adjustments, all that stuff. Like they're, they're not looking at the complicated footnotes. And so that's why Accounting Today published this headline, SVB's balance sheet time bomb was sitting in plain sight. And yes, if you go in, you dig into the footnotes, you look at the statement of comprehensive income or what do we call it, other comprehensive income, you can see that they had all these you know bonds that had lost a ton of value because of rising interest rates. And there were a few investors who spotted this back in January and were tweeting about it, but it was like very few. Raging Capital Ventures did a tweet thread on SVB's earnings and dug into all of this stuff, right? But it didn't hit mainstream consciousness. I hope these guys made a lot of money shorting SVB stock, right? Because they saw it, but it's, it's complicated and it's not easy to figure out. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that I feel like our accounting standards have gotten complicated, and it's very difficult for investors to understand. Even accountants weren't really aware of this until the collapse happened. And so maybe we need to simplify, right? Just like like with the tax code, we need to simplify. Perhaps we need to simplify GAAP so that you can't play all these games. I mean, the balance sheet of a bank ought to show whether or not it's solvent. Like, isn't that the whole point of the balance sheet of a bank is like assets minus liabilities, right? You, you don't want your liabilities to be bigger than your assets when you're, invest, when you're putting your money in a bank. But it didn't look like that. But maybe the way we do, do audits or we pay for the audits is firms that are doing audits are allowed to short sell stocks, right? That will force them to dig in, right, to get the real numbers. And then they could, we're, we're allowing them to do short sales and that'll actually protect the public, <laughs> Right, like, like go in and dig into those numbers and come up with a way, and then you're going to make your money on the short sell. Like, but then they would dig in the same way these short sellers dig in. Oh man, can you imagine that if the auditors were allowed to trade on their information? Only, only the short sell side, not not the upside. <laughs> they were allowed to short their own clients. So, so they'll let the they'll let the fraud go for a couple years. Oh, that's actually true. <laughs> and then and then they'll and then they'll, they'll actually short sell these huge positions. Well, we don't have to worry about them not telling us about fraud because only 4% of frauds are detected by the external auditors. I want to know who the 4% who get caught are, right? Like, the really, really dumb fraudsters, right? Yeah. It's pretty hard to get caught by like a second year audit uh, associate. <laughs> you have to be really stupid. We were so just I, have, I found the fraud. It's a dollar off. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were just talking with Paul Barnhurst, uh, the host of the FP&A Today podcast last week, and he was he was talking with us about this as Silicon Valley Bank was collapsing. He was saying that he witnessed auditors being gaslit in his career 
you know, like, and not being able to understand what was being handed to them and it just being very easy to, to trick an auditor. Also, like I, I've dealt with auditors where, you know, the auditor come to me, you know, I represent the company, God, audit insurance. Ugh, I don't know about that. Um, I'll, I'll talk, I have thoughts on that too, but where, where they, they would come to me and say, okay, like, you know, there's an, there's, a, we know there's an, a tax audit going on. Could you give us this? Yeah. And so I have to tell them about an audit that relates to like sales tax on the sale of an asset or an R&D credit audit or a billion other things. And they say, okay, thank you. And then I don't hear back. And like, I don't mean to sound rude, but like, I, you know, I have more than a decade doing this and you have six, the six minutes I just gave you, you know, <laughs> how much can you dig in? But you know what the part of the problem is yeah. that audits are the amount for public companies, the audit, the, the fee is public. And so if it's too high, there's an incentive for someone else to come in and undercut them by hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So they're basically at the lowest margin they can be to make a profit. They have to move every 10 years. People have to rotate every so often. So you just don't, you have a combination where sometimes you just don't have expertise on it that you need and they're forced to low margin it. So it's hard to mm -hmm. get people to stay. Audit has, I mean, tax is a turnover problem, but audit has a much bigger one. Plus also you go from an auditor to becoming a controller at a, at a fund, right? Better pay, better hours, better job better you know looks looks better on your your linkedin profile yeah. um audit insurance huh. so so keith here has commented ron baker says that insurance companies should sell audit insurance to companies and be the ones that hire the auditors so the idea here and i've heard ron speak about this and i think this is a really intriguing idea is that every public company is required to purchase audit insurance right or financial statement insurance and this is insurance that you know backstops the accuracy of the financial statements. And then the insurance companies would go out and hire the auditors to ensure compliance, to, you know, to ensure that these companies are actually reporting accurate numbers. I like that because it creates an incentive for the auditors to find what's wrong because they're working for these insurance companies and the insurance companies are incentivized if they're issuing financial statement insurance to have the numbers be accurate because the investors will sue if they are not. I think this is certainly a better alignment of interests than the current situation, which is auditors are hired by the companies they audit. And so they, like in the case of SVB, the auditors are never gonna issue a going concern warning against a bank because it will kill the bank. And then they, they lose their client, right? By the time they issue a going concern warning, the FDIC has already taken them over. Yeah. So I, 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 I'll, tell you what the, I'll tell you what the risk is that so in deals, there's what's called rep and warranty insurance. So there's insurance that everything is correct. And if it's not, the company doesn't pay, the seller doesn't pay, you, you buy insurance on it. It's the same idea. And what happens is it becomes commoditized. And so it gets priced and that's it. I, I think you would get people who would really look, they'd really want to find, but then it's like a tax audit again, but in financial. And it's the, the problem is it's, it's generally accepted accounting practices. If there's no rule book, there's no, it has to be this. It's there's mush in it, which is fine. There should be, it shouldn't be the same. It's do that. I just worry that's going to create over aggressive and you're going to get people whose job it is to go after them and they're going to really be tough. And then who has to make the decision, right? I get, conceptually I do. I swear it'll spring, swing the pendulum too, too far and mm. audits will become significantly more expensive because the insurance will be much more expensive. Mm. 
This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Keeper. By combining client communications, file review, reporting, and your task management, Keeper has everything you need to run your bookkeeping or task practice. Keeper is an all-in-one app that allows you, your team, and your clients to easily collaborate to make your monthly close as efficient as possible. Starting with a beautiful custom-branded client portal optimized for bookkeeping work, your client can answer questions you have about uncategorized transactions, allowing you to categorize and automatically post them to QuickBooks Online correctly, all without ever leaving Keeper. Via the month-end file review feature to surface transactions that may not be posted correctly, and by providing the perfect customized report that each client may need, Keeper can highlight the value that your firm provides clients. Keeper's built-in task management ensures nothing falls through the cracks, and it includes time tracking so you can see where you and your team spends their time. With Keeper's 1099 manager, you can easily review each client's list of vendors, email address, physical address, tax ID, and the amount paid, and from the same screen, even request W9s for any vendors that you're missing information for. No more jumping between screens or browser tabs. Keeper has a very affordable and clear pricing model that starts at only $8 a month. To learn more about why thousands of bookkeepers and accountants trust Keeper to manage their month-end close and to get 20% off your first three months by using code CAP20, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash keeper. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash K-E-E-P-E-R. Yeah, well, right now the price is rock bottom, right? It's basically as cheap as it can be because it's a commodity. Every mm-hmm. audit opinion is the same as every other audit opinion, right. at least among the big four. And then all the you know regional firms, right? They're all the same. They're hired, then, they hire the same partners, the same senior yeah, managers. It's right. All, they're, and that, they have, they have when we talk about like uh, the problem of low salaries for accounting grads when they go into auditing jobs, right? And two thirds of graduates go into audit. The reason the salaries are so low is because of what we just talked about, that audits commoditized, the prices are driven down to rock bottom as low as they can be where the audit partner still makes enough money, right? Mm-hmm. For that, you know, whatever that is. It's a business, it should make money. Yeah, of course. But, but the, and the only way for the audit partner to make more money is to keep the salaries as low as possible, right? Do the minimum amount of work to get through a PCAOB inspection and pay your auditors as little as possible. So you're hiring the least experienced people who know the least about how to actually audit. And you're doing the minimum amount to check all the boxes to satisfy your professional liability insurance and meet PCAOB inspections. So this is why audits have very low value because they don't really catch that much. It might get lower because CLA, did you see this? They just launched paid high school accounting internships. Yeah, paid that. high school accounting internships so I can have a high school kid <laughs> no, the auditing. Headline, the, headline, the headline makes it seem something that it's not. Okay. Uh, basically, they partnered with um, Future Business Leaders of America. And it looks like if you read it, they're not actually doing any internship work. They're going to do client service simulations, social media development, Oh, I like and they're that. They're going to make presentations and compete in competitions. So it's like, what are you paying them to actually do? Like, you're not paying them to actually do work to where they actually get some experience. Like, it would be great. Like, hey, you're going to shadow somebody that's going to in the cash practice for two and a half months and reconcile QuickBooks. It doesn't feel like it's that. It's basically well, you want them to have a, you want them to have a really great internship experience so that then they take the job, <laughs> right? The bait and switch. <laughs> is that what this is? It might be. No, I'm, I'm I'm being overly harsh, I'm sure. I hope if anyone from CLA is listening, I apologize. That's just my hot take. Not accurate. We're not j- real journalists here, right, David? 
Not this week. Not this week. Okay, got it. Did you want to jump into PAP news before we wrap up? Or yeah, yeah. What do you What do you got? Um, so one of these things is it's it's, it's short. Uh, we have something from Zoho. So Zoho had a blog post of their ten most installed Zoho CRM extensions of 2022. Mm-hmm. And why, what it, why it caught my eye, buddy, because you've been a big kick on this as far as like you should communicate with your clients the way they want. If they want to use SMS, text back and forth with your clients. Five of the top 10 apps installed to Zoho CRM. Are you ready? SMS Magic, WhatsApp for the web, SMS for Zoho CRM by Message Media, WebNex's WhatsApp chat for Zoho CRM, and Click Send SMS. Five of the 10 top add-ons to Zoho CRM are ways to do instant messaging with your clients. Amazing. And that's across right. all Zoho. All Zoho yeah. customers. So, 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 so businesses on Zoho are really using those kind of apps to connect with their CRM. That's And to chat yeah. with their customers. Right. Because the customers obviously want to be interacting that way. That's what they want. They want the convenience of being able to text. They don't want to do email. Yeah. But that's it's, it's hard, right? Because if you're not tech savvy, if you don't have a firm that's hooked up this way, then your only option is to give your clients your cell phone number, which is a total do not ever do that, right? Uh, I made that mistake 10 years ago and I'm still paying for it. So so these apps are really cool because you can give your clients a phone number and then they can text with you and it doesn't go to your personal phone. It goes to your you know desktop computer so you can only answer them you know when you're when you're actually working. I don't know. Matt, do you text with your clients, Matt? Oh, do you have? No. Um, it, it's The problem is attorneys have to keep, keep a lot of documentation for a while and having them in multiple places. The answer is email only for me. I mean, you can call me, obviously, but really email is the best. Plus, most of my clients, the answers are more significant than a quick text would really work. So it's just not. Yeah, and, I don't, and, and the email takes the full eight minutes for you to bill, but a text six. reply isn't long enough for you to, to, to document and bill. You bill in a tenth of an hour, which is six minutes. Six minutes, know? okay. Yeah, yeah, and text is a little bit faster than that. I get it. Okay. Well, I, Honestly, I, was, I probably type faster than I text. The text is using your thumbs. This one, I got, I, got, I got all these digits, you know? So, Matt, what's your charge code for this episode? Uh, this is going to probably be a, a marketing, non-client specific marketing. Got it. So, uh, speaking of the accounting talent shortage, did we talk about that yet? This episode, I feel like it's a requirement. Here's a story I saw in accounting today. Lack of accountants puts cities' credit ratings at risk. So there's a real impact happening here. Municipalities across the U.S. are at risk of having their credit ratings downgraded or withdrawn by S&P Global Ratings because staffing shortages have delayed financial disclosure documents. S&P has placed 149 long-term underlying and program ratings on a negative credit watch this year because the ratings company hasn't received the 2021 financial statements from the issuers. That's the most since at least 2018 and materially higher than the prior five-year average of 95 such moves, according to S&P data, data, not David. So this is why getting more CPAs into the pipeline is critical. There's not a lot of urgency from our leaders in the accounting profession. But if we don't do something now to make up that 17% that quit over the last few years, we're going to have real economic consequences. And in this case, it's for cities. And, and this goes back to a doc, uh, two weeks ago when we had uh, Dr. Josh on from Troy State, right? Josh McGowan, and yep. He, and he had that hypothetical like, okay, I'm Mr. State Representative and you come crying to me about changing the 150-hour rule, the 120-hour rule, like why I should do it. Because the, yeah. it truly impacts you. This is why. 
Like, yeah, this is why. This I think is why is 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 because the the problem is so urgent that we need to get more people into the profession. That yeah, that'll actually make it happen. Because they're dealing with the pain of that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Matt. There's a shortage of. Uh, is there a shortage of attorneys, or did they produce like enough of you guys? There's not. There probably. I mean, tax has always has has a need. Um, yeah. Certain areas are much more flashy. I guess might be the word, or or not as technically complex. That that sounds arrogant, and I know I apologize for that, but no, it's, it's the yeah. truth. Ta- tax, you know, requires a certain. You have to want. I always. I tell people who, who take think about taxes. You have to want to do tax. If you don't enjoy it. It's going to burn you out very hard um, and fast. So it's it's tough. And a lot of people start in tax and make yeah. it a year and then don't want to do it anymore. So, But the people who stay, stay. So are there shortages? Also, you know, there's 100 and 180 or so attorneys, uh, uh, law schools out there that are producing anywhere from about 150 to 700 or 800 attorneys a year, right? The vast majority of people pass the bar. They yeah. work in jobs that don't require it. So, and it's, there don't need to be as many attorneys as accountants. And I think there's just more jobs that accountants fill than lawyers. So I think huh. that that really makes it harder. Um, I think the, the 150 hours is tough. That extra 30 hours of, it, it's not like you need to go to school for accounting for 30 hours. You can take whatever. Yeah. That doesn't, that never made sense to me. Yeah. Law school has a specific like objective and value. You get that law degree at the end, but the 150 doesn't necessarily and I, it was interesting, David, I was re-listening to our uh, interview with Ken Bishop of NASBA, the president of NASBA that we just dropped into the feed uh, yesterday or the day before. And I, I highly recommend everyone go listen to that. I've been thinking about that a lot, that the defense of the 150 always seems to revolve around the value of the master's of accountancy. And that is one way to satisfy the 150 requirement is to go get that one-year master's. And I'm sure there are many people who benefit greatly from that and they get great jobs at the big four. That's where they tend to go and they have fantastic careers. But that's only like 20,000 people a year that do that. And we need way more accountants than that. And those accountants who don't go to those master's programs are the ones having to hassle for those extra 30 hours that they really don't need to go be an accountant at a city government, you know? Like, you don't need the master's degree to do that. Like, it's just way overkill. And I think that's what you're, I heard you say, Matt, is we need a lot more accountants than we need lawyers. And so, you know, by trying to make accounting into, you know, competitive, I mean, I still think it's kind of pathetic to like only add a year if you want to like be like lawyers, right? But to try and like compare it to that is not, it's not the same. I think that focus needs to be on what actually makes accountants better. And I think it's the same thing that I say that makes lawyers better. I don't know if the best lawyers are the ones who went to the, necessarily went to the best law school or whatever. What makes you a good at really any profession is that you put an effort, you try, you focus on it, and you pick up concepts and you improve over time. And I think that is more important than getting an extra 30 hours. And maybe the answer is you, you, you more formalize the requirements to become a CPA in terms of experience, right? Yeah. Maybe it becomes the, the CPA splits into something more similar to like the EA for tax and something for audit, right? That, that's that split that has to happen because I think there are fewer and fewer jobs that are generalists anymore. And, and I think that that's what makes it hard is that I think accounting still wants to be a generalist and a specialist at the same time. And I don't, I don't mean to dig on it, but I don't know how you do that. You know, doctors aren't generalists anymore. There's very few. They, yeah. they, they're specialists and every profession becomes more and more special. Just how 
the world's working because of complexity. What's strange about but, accounting is how we all start out, like two thirds of the accounting profession starts out in audit, but then within like two or three years, none of them are, like very few of them are doing it anymore. Now they go off and they do other things. It's a very, very different setup that we've got just by the nature of how these bigger firms work and how the whole pipeline works from college into the firms and then out into industry. I also uh, think the first two years of any job out of college is kind of awful. You know, you're, you're beyond the low person on the totem pole. And I think that's really a challenge. And I think they look at the next, the next step and they're like, boy, do I really want to be a senior? Do I really want to be a manager? Does that look any better? And the answer is maybe not. And that's why, that's why a lot of people leave. And I think they have to focus on what the job is, what you're trying to accomplish and create mm -hmm. a pipeline that gets people to the next step more than how it is. Matt, we're coming up at the top of the hour. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. I've really sure. enjoyed it. David, where can our listeners catch you online? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. And I am at Blake T. Oliver. Thank you, everyone who has joined us live. You can follow us on YouTube. Subscribe to our channel. You'll get notified when we are live, and you can interact with us, chat with us, let us know what you think. We are here at randomly different times every week, it seems. So you just have to subscribe and, and hope you catch us. We are cloudaccountingpodcast.com, and you can email us cloud accounting podcast at earmarkcpe.com. All right, Matt, great chatting with you. Hope to see you around here soon. Thank you. Take care. Time for the classifieds. ClientHub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part, that it's free. Introducing the free ClientHub recategorized plan. ClientHub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award-winning ClientHub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to clienthub.app. That's clienthub.app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi-seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm framework, which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www dot futurefirmaccelerate.com that's www.futurefirmaccelerate.com We don't like uncategorized transactions, but we do like cats, and we love Uncat. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers have switched from sending spreadsheets of uncategorized transactions to their clients every month to using Uncat. It's easy. Uncat syncs with QuickBooks and gets clients' responses back so fast, you can close the books on time, every time. And you're going to love the price. Uncat is just $5 per month per client. And bonus, start a 14-day free trial at Uncat.com, and they'll send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. Get yours at Uncat.com. Are you tired of spending hours manually adjusting your balance sheet and reconciling your accounts every month? Say hello to NetTracker. 
automate tedious tasks such as adjustments for depreciation, prepaid expenses, accruals, and deferred revenue. With just a few clicks, selected balance sheet accounts are updated and reconciled. No more stress and hassle every month. NetTracker makes monthly financial reporting a breeze. Try it now with QuickBooks Online, Zero or Sage Business Cloud, and see how much time and energy you can save. www.nettracker.com. That's www.nett-tracker.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.